We are excited to announce the new edition of ACP's Medical Knowledge Self-Assessment Program, MixApp 19, will be released August 31st, 2021. Reserve your copy today. Visit acponline.org forward slash MixApp 19. That's acponline.org forward slash MixApp 19. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. I did not interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, so, everybody, that's the great Dr. Stuart Brigham. Uh, I am Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. In a second here, we'll introduce Paul, but I wanted to tell you that today on the show, we're talking about sarcoidosis, a topic that I never really understood that well, but I, I feel like I have probably the best grasp I'm ever going to have on it at this at this point right now. We had two fantastic guests who you'll hear about in just a second. A reminder that this episode and most of our recent episodes are available for CME credit for all healthcare professionals for free from VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to sign up and get an account there. And now, the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, could you please tell the audience, what is it we do on this show? And then why don't you tell them about our guests? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And we have two experts for you, as you mentioned, for the the black box topic of sarcoidosis, which can either be asymptomatic or manifest as everything. (laughs) And our two guests talk us through exactly what to look for, when to be worried about it, um, basics of management, and then the importance of teamwork. Um, So I'll tell you about them both one by one. So let me start with uh, Dr. Mary Beth Scholland who is a pulmonologist at the University of Utah. She is the medical director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program and focuses her career on advancing care for patients with interstitial lung disease, including pulmonary fibrosis and sarcoidosis, tonight's topic. She especially loves teaching others about these diseases and is very excited to be joining us for this episode. Our second amazing guest is Dr. John Boltax, also a pulmonologist at the University of Utah. He is an associate program director for the Pulmonary Fellowship Program. He focuses his efforts on sarcoidosis, education, and the Pulmonary Function Test Laboratory. He is primarily an outpatient clinician and is surprised by how his love for ICU medicine has transitioned to the outpatient clinic environment. Dr. Boltax thanks his outstanding colleagues and fellows for their incredible support during his career and is further grateful for their role in making what would have been an unbearable year bearable. So we've got two fantastic guests. We have um, an extraordinarily confusing disease made as simple as we possibly can. So without further ado, let's get to it. So Matt, this is coming out around Valentine's Day, right? That's true. Okay. (laughs) Great. Uh, that's perfect because while this topic can really take your breath away, it can also be a serious heartbreaker. <laughs> I thought you said it was a good one. <laughs> it was. Can you work something in with calcium? Maybe ace levels? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> you should see this. I got all my puns here. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stop recording. Mary Beth. So excited to have you here, and please share with the audience a one-liner about yourself, and you can feel free to throw in any hobby or interest outside of medicine. 
Excited to be here. Thank you. My name is Mary Beth Scholen, and I'm a pulmonary uh, physician who really specializes in interstitial lung disease. And when I'm not at the hospital, I'm usually found in a hockey rink with one of my three boys who play hockey. Fantastic. John, how about you? Same question. Sure. My name's John Boltax. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician who has spent too much of the year doing COVID. Um, I have too many interests outside of work. Uh, two kids uh, having fun with them up in the mountains and uh, a new quarantine wolfhound puppy. Okay. Well, wolfhound puppy. Is that, is <laughs> yes. that like a, a dog wolf hybrid? No, it's like a dog that gets giant. Oh, okay. We didn't know that when we got it. Do you think it was like, it uh, like, a, like, a, like a wolf dog hybrid when you first no, got it? No, no, no. It's like, a, looks like a, a giant terrier, maybe. I don't okay. know. <laughs> so we're going to do an abbreviated version of our normal getting to know you since the big topic. We have two guests here. So Mary Beth, I wanted to know what's some advice that you would like to bestow upon our audience? I think that it's important in this crazy business that we're in that we always remember why we got into it and to remember to be receptive to those patients who are grateful to us and soak that in and remember that we're doing good things for people. It's always challenging to do in the heat of the moment. So I feel repeated reminders are very important. Yes, I agree. And John, on that hopeful note, um, let me transition to failure. Um, Could you tell us... (laughs) One of our our favorite questions. (laughs) So if you could just bring us back down to earth um, and tell us about your favorite failure um, and and what you learned from it, please. Sure. Uh, You know, I I think my favorite failure is really my academic career before I decided to go to med school and that I really was an abysmal student. And uh, when I decided to go to med school, I really had to learn how to be a good student. And I learned that perseverance is just as important as ability. And I think that still holds true, that perseverance in taking care of your patients, perseverance in, you know, showing up to the job every day and doing the right things for your patients, whatever setting you're in is really important. No, that's terrific advice. I think I learned my first time through college that being smart actually isn't enough. And that was a surprise to me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. If people can, uh, if people can somehow hear, uh, Paul, that talk that you, the virtual talk you gave at University of Florida, your story there is, is fantastic. Maybe we can chase down that link. Hey everyone, you know that I love MixApp and MixApp 19 is finally coming this August 31st, 2021. It's got some cool new features like earn as you go CME plus enhanced multimedia learning. Now you can hear heart sounds, you can watch videos, use virtual whiteboard. You can choose between MixApp 19 Digital where you get both online and offline access to their quizzes and earn as you go CME and mock or MixApp 19 Complete which includes virtual DX, a thousand plus digital flashcards, mix app quick questions, and print and digital board basics formats. Or finally, you can choose mix app 19 complete green, which is the best value because you get access to all the content online, plus the print books. Mix app is such a great product. So make sure to reserve your copy today at acponline.org forward slash mix app 19. You can reserve your mix app 19 program before August 31st and receive a pre-release discount of 10% on MixApp 19 Digital and Complete Green, and a 15% on MixApp 19 Complete. So visit acponline.org forward slash MixApp 19. So Paul, how about a case from Cashlack? Let's let's get into this topic. There's a lot to talk about. 
Great. So I'm going to present uh, to you all the case of Ms. Sarah C. Otis. She is a 32-year-old woman. She's presenting to her PCP following a trip to the ER. Last week when she was biking to work, she got her wheel stuck in a trolley track and fell off of her bike. In the accident, she had some shoulder pain, so she went to the ER. The x-ray happily didn't show any shoulder problems, but the ER doc told her that the plain film showed, quote, bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy, um, which she almost certainly didn't know what to do with, and told her to follow up with her primary care physician. On your initial history, the patient is not experiencing any shortness of breath. She has no trouble at all biking five miles to work. She's never had issues with syncope or palpitations or chest pain. During the visit, she just recapitulates the, the ER visit and says that she does have a family history of sarcoidosis. And so after hearing this and reviewing the notes, uh, Ms. Otis's doctor, uh, who will collectively be us, decides to do further workup and evaluation, but we are going to need your help to sort of refresh us as to where to start. So before we even get going, I feel like this is oftentimes how sarcoid presents itself to us. So how do you, how do you explain sarcoidosis to a patient? Because I'm not even sure I can explain it to another clinician at this point. <laughs> Why don't we start? Um, thank you, Stuart. Why don't we start with Mary Beth? And then, um, John, if you want to piggyback off your answer, that would be wonderful. Yeah, it's a great question, and we have to answer it all the time. Every patient comes in. This is very common, right, that they uh, have been in the emergency room, had an abnormal chest X-ray, got sent to us to, for further evaluation. Oftentimes, they come in scared, thinking that they might have cancer or something, and they say, what the heck is this sarcoidosis? So we tell them, we say, this is, you know, honestly, we don't really know all the details of what sarcoidosis is. We do know that it's some type of inflammatory condition, some sort of uh, immune system gone awry trying to respond to an unknown uh, stimulus, but we don't know the cause. We do know that it most often affects the lungs. So up to words of 90% of patients have some lung involvement, such as, such as Miss Otis, but um, it can affect any organ. And so we have to sort of do a survey of systems to understand where this inflammatory systemic disease is impacting the patient. Um, and so we uh, start by telling the patient that we're going to sort out um, if they indeed have sarcoidosis and then find out where it's living and then find out if we have to treat it. John, any, anything additional you add, any analogies, comparisons, things like that? Sure. When I see a patient like this, I, um, I agree with everything Mary Beth said. And I try to ex express to them that sarcoid can be a very mild disease and it can be a more severe disease and stressing that we need to figure out, is this indeed sarcoid? And if it is, do we need to treat it? Do we just need to watch it? Uh, and also stressing that most patients get better from sarcoid. Uh, and so trying to reassure them that uh, we want to be thorough. It's going to be a pretty big evaluation as we start, but not to be worried about that. Uh, we want to make sure we have the right diagnosis. We know the extent of the disease. And then we know, do we need to actually treat this disease? Um, go ahead, Mary Beth. No, and I might add that, um, you know, I do, I do emphasize the unknown etiology of it. And I explained to them that we do have some understandings that something is triggering this, but it could be an environmental um, experience. So I explained, I, for example, I use the example of the World Trade Center, uh, where we saw a outbreak of sarcoidosis there. I talk about the possible infectious etiologies. I talk about th that it could be familial as in this case. And I also talk about that oftentimes it's idiopathic and we can't really sort out uh, how, it, how the patient got it. They often ask, how could I have possibly gotten this? So I think that's the other important component of explaining sarcoidosis. And the other thing I'll say to a patient is that it's almost like a callus, you know, that something is irritating and driving inflammation. And I, I just say a granuloma is almost like a callus. I realize it's different 
But at the same time, you have this sort of chronic irritation that uh, drives formation of a granuloma, that irritation being the interaction of the epitope and uh, the immune system. And John, for, for our audience, can you describe what exactly is an epitope so that they have a common understanding? So an antigen uh, that's presented by the uh, immune system, by the antigen presenting cells via the HLA system to the CD4 cells. So that drives the inflammatory process in sarcoid. And before we were recording, uh, we were talking a little bit about whether you can treat that with antibiotics or not. And I just want to get your words on this so that our audience understands. Okay. So uh, there is some thought, you know, Mary Beth touched on the fact that uh, sarcoid can be driven by exposure. So beryllium, I had a patient recently with cubic zirconium exposure through work. And, but also there's a thought that it can be triggered by uh, recognizing commensal organisms and the two main ones that are uh, thought to be driving this and debated in the sarcoid world are propionobacterium acnes, right? And uh, mycobacterium species. And there are a lot of mycobacterium species and we can't culture them all. And there's some part of those species that's no longer a viable organism that's being presented via HLA system to the immune system. And instead of being ignored as it should be or recognized and then saying this is not a threat, it is being reacted to. So that we think is the driver behind sarcoid, whether it's beryllium or some other occupational exposure, or whether it's this unknown driver uh, possibly being one of those organisms. I'd like to talk a little bit about the the history here. So we, we gave you the history for Miss Sarah C. Otis. And Mary Beth, is there, is, are there any additional questions that that you would like to get, like that are part of your typical history for a patient you're seeing that you suspect has sarcoidosis? Yeah. So I, I think that what um, we mentioned earlier, that this is a, a systemic disease. So it's a multi-organ involvement. Um, the questions that we ask uh, focus on finding out which organs are involved in uh, sarcoidosis. So um, and the other questions we ask really are centered around understanding how severely uh, the patient is impacted. So the history and physical we have is really um, very comprehensive. Um, and I think that it's very helpful to clinicians to have some sort of templated note or some sort of templated uh, checklist to make sure that they review every organ system that can be involved. And those include neuropsych involvement, ophthalmologic involvement, respiratory, which is the most common, 90% of patients or so have respiratory involvement, but GI, liver, renal involvement, skin involvement, cardiac, et cetera. And I can go through um, each of the, we can talk about uh, those manifestations in each of those organs in more detail um, as we move along. The other thing is important to talk to them about is potential exposures. Um, that could be causing this. And then the third element that I think is important in the history and physical is, is weeding out the mimickers of sarcoidosis. So I want to ask them about potential uh, fungal or AFB infections and having systemic manifestations that way. I want to ask them about their immune system. Uh, specifically, have, do they have a history of you know, recurrent infections or something that might make me think about immunodeficiency that's driving this? I want to ask them about B symptoms uh, that consider uh, the possibility of the differential lymphoma, so asking them about fever, night sweats, uh, weight loss, et cetera, and then, as I said, going through each organ system. 
I think that uh, John probably has some other thoughts too. It's a very comprehensive history, so it's a it's a long it's a long history for that initial evaluation. John, do you do you use a is there a standard form or questionnaire that you have for the patients with sarcoid? Is it, or is there something available publicly that our audience can use if they have a patient they're suspecting? I mean, there are articles that can go through your workup and your history in sarcoid. I have a templated note that I use because I just can't remember. And I actually ask those questions every visit, really. I mean, you know, as I get to know the patient and I see the manifestations of their disease, I back off on what I'm asking them about. So it's not such a lengthy visit every time, but I at least sort of check the box that I'm reviewing. You know, are you having cardiac symptoms? Did you have syncope? You know, did you feel like your heart racing? Uh, do you have any focal numbness? You know, the really important things you don't want to miss in sarcoid because it can you know, affect every organ like Mary Beth said, and you just want to make sure you don't miss the ones that can cause real damage to a patient's life. Uh, and so I just have a templated note to make sure I'm reviewing those things every time. And it's pretty quick. You know, I try to keep the patient on task saying, let's just move through these questions. You know, I'll talk about these other things, but I just need to move through these organ systems and make sure I'm not missing something here today that I need to evaluate further. Yeah, maybe I, I was thinking as you're saying that it might be helpful if you if, if you and Mary Beth wouldn't mind if we could maybe we could you could share a copy of your note and we could make some form of that as part of our show notes or like a deliverable for the audience. It doesn't have to be the exact, but just uh, some thing that they could potentially use to to ask about these questions or to remind them, like a checklist or something. I can certainly share you my note that I have. So when I was reading about this, Mary Beth, I. I noticed that it seems like it's there's a delayed diagnosis oftentimes. Are there things that you you think people miss that maybe is there ways we can do a better job of identifying this early or are there common mistakes that you see made like someone's been seeing their primary doctor or their general internist or family doc for maybe if you could give the audience like maybe how can we help you find these people earlier and get them to you? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I you know I think that certainly the asymptomatic patients, such as Miss Otis, uh, at least at this stage of her uh, disease, are difficult to pick up unless you incidentally get a chest X-ray. So these people, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how we would pick them up earlier, other than to say that, you know, clinicians shouldn't ignore, you know, interesting, maybe incidentally read findings on chest X-rays. In terms of symptoms, because 90% of patients have some sort of lung involvement and quite a few of those will have, you know, actually symptomatic disease, I think it's very important to appreciate when a patient tells you they're dysmic uh, to, to understand and, and evaluate that. Um, and I think a lot of times it's easy for us to, when a patient tells us they're dysmic to say, well, you know, or even the patients do it. I'm out of shape. I, I, I gained weight. You know, I'm getting old, things of that nature. But to really query patients about that shortness of breath and consider additional workup. And that workup might include pulmonary function testing to pick up either restriction or obstruction, imaging, where we might pick up some of the earlier findings of sarcoidosis, listening to the patient. So patients, for example, with fibrotic sarcoidosis will have crackles and you can hear that. So I think just paying good attention to someone saying that they're short of breath and working that up rather than just dismissing it would be a valuable uh, tool in picking this up earlier. And because it's multi-system too, I think that patients that have unexplained rashes, unexplained red eyes, unexplained dyspnea, I mean, syncope or palpitations, these all deserve further workup too, because these are also manifestations of sarcoid. 
and rarely uh, high calciums end up being sarcoid. So patients with high calciums uh, should also be considered uh, for the sarcoid evaluation. But I think if I had one sort of pearl is to just to pay close attention when people say they're short of breath and uh, get a little further evaluation on that. And is cough typically part of that pulmonary presentation too, or is it primarily dyspnea that patients report? I'm sorry. Oh yeah, cough, exactly. And cough goes in that same category. So someone that has a chronic cough uh, that you can't explain, so it isn't post-viral or it isn't, uh, you know, the ACE inhibitor or something that deserves evaluation. Very similar to what I mentioned uh, for the dyspnea. I would add to that, that the delay in diagnosis, you know, it's, you're never going to diagnose someone with asymptomatic who's 32 and has adenopathy, but the delay in diagnosis of people who get multiple courses of antibiotics for something, you know, saying this is a pneumonia and clearly it's not responding to those antibiotics. And I see a real delay in diagnosis around that. And you see that in a lot of other diseases too. So just being aware that, hey, you know, in this clinical situation, I, I think this patient maybe has pneumonia. You understand that a primary care provider uh, or whoever saw the patient, an ER doc or anybody or me included, uh, might think this is a pneumonia. But if you treat it, it doesn't respond appropriately to move on and to make sure you're not anchoring on that diagnosis. The other thing I'll add is you know, I seem, feel like I see a fair bit of hypercalcemia with sarcoid, you know, it just, and then I see kidney stones. And so someone who has stones and you don't know why they're having stones, and then, you know, you want to make sure that you're evaluating that person, uh, what their calcium is, uh, what their urinary calcium is, and uh, could sarcoid be a driver for this? I agree with all of that. And the other thing I would add, this is sort of to John's point about making sure you're not missing the dangerous manifestations. You know, I've seen this where cardiomyopathies that aren't worked up, palpitations that aren't worked up, syncope, presyncope that aren't worked up. These are these can be presenting manifestations of sarcoid, and it should remain in your differential when patients present like this. Hey, Matt, you know what I really love to do? I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of things, Stuart. Uh, other than inter- I, other than interrupting me, I'm not. I'm not sure. What, yeah, are, you, what are you getting you, at? Sleep, man. I love to sleep, but uh, what kind of? Do, do you like to sleep? I I do like to sleep, Stuart, but uh, I'll be honest. Let's let's get real, Stuart. I do not sleep very well. I uh, most nights I wake up and uh, sometimes I can't fall back asleep, and it it could be hours. Uh, and I really is it because of your mattress. You know what, Stuart? My mattress is old. I wouldn't say it's old and saggy, uh, which I believe you asked me in a previous take. But uh, <laughs> my mattress, my mattress is old, and I could. I am really excited because I am getting a new mattress from Birch, and I have not had a new mattress. It's been at least ten years. And what's so special about these mattresses from Birch, Paul? <laughs> Thank you for that naturalistic and flawless segue. But they're. <laughs> Yeah. And what makes them special is they are organic, they are non-toxic, and you, believe me, when you want a mattress, you want it to be non-toxic, and they're made right here in America and shipped straight to you. The delivery is beautifully painless in a way that not many deliveries are these days. So, Paul, what I'm worried about, this mattress thing, this is, mattresses are a huge investment. Uh, first of all, how long is this thing going to last me? And if I don't like it, what am I going to do about that? So, great questions, all. This, this, the Birch mattress has a 25-year warranty. Um, so may it may well last your marriage. I mean, I, or may not. You know, it's got. <laughs> but you know, you get to try it out for the first hundred nights, risk free. So if you don't like it, you have you know three months and change to try to make sure that you're sleeping as beautifully as promised. And and if you don't love it, you can send it back. But that's not going to be a problem. I'm sure that you will. 
Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Paul, you certainly want to know about the exam here, huh? Well, sure. I guess I guess we should examine the patient. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, you mentioned the crackles and sort of earlier, actually, I guess sort of later ILD. Are there any other examination findings that, again, sort of raise your antenna for sarcoidosis or that are, are especially that would especially tilt you in that direction? And why don't we why don't we start with Mary Beth? Uh, rashes. So, you know, the yeah, certainly we could show some typical rashes that you see in sarcoid, um, perhaps uh, to go along with this. That would be something, red eyes are something that I would pay attention to, and uh, peripheral uh, adenopathy. So oftentimes they'll have adenopathy in their cervical chain uh, or in their groin. So those are other findings on physical exam that could be uh, telling you about sarcoid. Right. John, anything else that we can impress our consultants with? Uh, Yeah, I would add that, you know, the rashes can be pretty atypical looking. Like you want to think about erythema nodosum on the lower extremities. Uh, you want to think about their joints. Do they have synovitis? Do they have arthritis? Signs on exam, then the neurologic exam too. I don't do a detailed one, but more making sure they have adequate strength in all extremities, normal strength in all extremities. So uh, the exam is is certainly helpful, but a lot of sarcoid patients, you find normal exams as well. Stuart, you're a big fan of ACE levels, right? Uh, n- no. Am I supposed to be? <laughs> For the purpose of this episode, you're a Oh, yes. I love it. Ace in the, the hole. Bus. Yes. Right answer, Stuart. Right answer. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take it. So the ACE level, the sensitivity is about only 75% and there's uh, specificity is also not good. Uh, so yes, it's going to be elevated in, a, in three quarters of your sarcoid patients, but it's going to be elevated in a lot of other diseases you know, asbestosis, beryllium, coxy, diabetes, silicosis, TB, lung cancer, infection. Uh, so there's a lot of false positives there. And so we generally don't follow ACE levels, you know, for those reasons. Mary Beth, for someone like Sarah, so we have this, what, what we think is asymptomatic sarcoid. It was picked up incidentally. As the primary doc, if you're the first person seeing her, before we refer her to you or while we're waiting for her to get to get into CU, what sort of labs or additional testing should we as a primary just feel comfortable ordering? I mean, I think you should order a calcium to not to not miss a hypercalcemia liver function test to make sure the liver function is um, normal and not and be, the liver is not being impacted by this. Um, and also that sets you up for treatment later. Um, but in general, I think we need to move quickly to making the diagnosis. And what we need in this situation would be a biopsy and finding the, the pathognomonic uh, non-casein granulomas. So I would move quickly to getting that referral and getting that biopsy done. The other thing you could consider, particularly uh, if the history is suggestive, is uh, immunoglobulin levels to rule out immunodeficiencies, which might be a mimicker of this as well, of sarcoid when I say this. So that would be like the the serum uh, quantitative immunoglobulins. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I order. I order the yeah the IgG, IgMs, and IgAs. And if you know, I have definitely found that what I thought might have been sarcoid was actually CVID, and then the lung manifestation of CVIDs. That's common variable immunodeficiency. Is this granulomatous lymphocytic interstitial lung disease? 
uh, that can manifest by either lymphocytic uh, infiltrates or granuloma infiltrates and can oftentimes look like sarcoid. So, you know, just ruling that out can be helpful at the early stages. Okay. Can I ask Mary Beth a question? This is unprecedented. (laughs) I love it. So, you know, this woman, she's 32, she has adenopathy. If you did a EKG and you did labs and you did a calcium and you did a thorough history and physical, would you ever consider not biopsying her if that was the only manifestation you had? Because I see a lot of people with symmetrical adenopathy and I don't see other manifestations. And someone like her, if it was only symmetrical adenopathy, I wouldn't put her on systemic therapy. And I might just follow her up in three months with a repeat image um, and make and maybe repeat labs and make sure I'm not missing something, you know, make sure I'm not missing dangerous involvement of sarcoid, saying, okay, this may be sarcoid. If the adenopathy is not really large and I'm not worried about lymphoma right now, and it's symmetrical and it checks all those boxes that it's likely to be. Maybe I just sit on this. Well, like all things in medicine, it's shared decision making, right? So you can talk to the patient. I mean, there are opportunities, there are instances where we would talk to our patient and they would say, oh, I'm not doing that terrible bronchoscopy. You're going to waterboard <laughs> me, you know, things of that nature. And then you can say that, well, that's a reasonable decision because I think odds are this is sarcoid, right? But I think um, I always worry about the differential lymphoma, um, and I'm never comfortable that that's not it. And and we have the luxury in Utah of not having a lot of histoplasmosis, but if you're in the middle of the country, this can be histoplasmosis, and you want to uh, try to assess for that as well. Um, and so if if the patient's willing, I, I, I'd get a biopsy. And I, I think it, it informs me down the line, too, so I don't have to worry later. So if those lymph nodes grow, for example, oh, shoot, did I miss lymphoma? You know, you don't want to you want to be pretty secure as you push forward, or if the patient manifests symptoms later to have that, you know, d- that biopsy in your pocket, lets you move forward with therapy a lot quicker. So I prefer a biopsy early, but I, I agree with you. I think sometimes patients don't want to do that and, and are looking for you to reassure them that the odds are with them. So sometimes you'll make that decision for them. So my, my head's kind of spinning right now. How, how do we actually make the diagnosis then, John? Yeah. So. Um... I have a quote from an article, I think it was in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, and it said, the diagnosis of sarcoidosis is arbitrarily made when the statistical (laughs) likelihood of alternative diagnosis becomes too small to warrant further investigation. Okay, so I just want to recap a little bit. So we've we've gone over, we're taking a multi-system history, we're going to try, you, you all will share your templates with us so that way we, we can put some of those questions that people should be asking systematically into the show notes. And we're thinking about the mimics of sarcoid. We're ordering just at the basic first visit for Miss Otis, we'd be getting something like a CBC because we're thinking lymphoma's in the consideration, CMP for liver, kidney involvement. Uh, we said a check of calcium. And we said quantitative immunoglobulins might be something we could consider. We talked about an EKG and how we're still not certain that that's what she has, John, that, that this is sarcoid. So how would we be very sure of the diagnosis? Because, yeah, well, well, let's just start there. Then we'll have f- some follow-up questions. Okay. So we talked about how we think about the diagnosis is made by this arbitrary threshold. And so we want to take away the uh, from the differential. We want to exclude the more common mimickers. Uh, and so when we get a biopsy, and in someone like this, we would do an EBUS biopsy, we would make sure that her sample is sent for 
cytopathology. We would make sure that it's sent for flow cytometry, make sure it's sent for fungal and AFB cultures and stains. And those would take away some of the common mimickers of sarcoid. Uh, then when we're doing her lab workup, you know, we would maybe want to check a quantiferent gold depending on risk factor. We would want to check an HIV uh, depending on risk factors. And so we want to take these other things where we think we're taking away the likelihood of that alternative diagnosis. And then we have a clinical picture. We've done our history. We've done our physical. We have our lab results. We have our path results. And does it all fit together that we feel comfortable, fit together well enough that we feel comfortable that we've excluded these other, excluded common variable immune deficiency, excluded TB, fungal infection. And we feel comfortable that we've crossed that threshold that we can say, this is sarcoid, and now we can move forward with treatment of that. And I think even after we do that, if a patient then comes back and isn't behaving like you would expect a sarcoid to behave, not responding to treatment appropriately, having manifestations that don't make sense, you then have to ask yourself that question again. But for now, once you've done those things, you can move forward and say, I've crossed the threshold where this is likely sarcoid. Everything else is very unlikely. Now I can ask myself, does it need treatment or not? Paul, did you come across that in, in a mix app, this Lofgren syndrome? I'm sure everyone's come across this. Like, it sounds like that's the one time you know, Lofgren syndrome, which is the enodosum, the, uh, they have arthritis, uh, and the hyaluradenopathy that will come up on boards that you shouldn't biopsy that person. But Mary Beth, Mary Beth, in reality, does that person with Lofgren syndrome get biopsied? Not uh, usually. Okay. If, if you send that person to a sarcoid expert or a pulmonologist or a rheumatologist, we would say this is pathognomonic for sarcoid. It does not need a biopsy. Okay. Any other slam dunk home runs? This is sarcoid. We don't have to go after things with needles. Like any other presentations that are just so prototypic, you feel confident in the diagnosis? Well, there's Hereford syndrome, right? It has uveitis, parotitis, and fever. But my experience is that those folks generally end up with like biopsies of their parotids. They get into CENT. Don't they get nerve palsies too? Is that, that, that would always freak me out. Anybody that has nerve stuff, I'm like... This, yeah, I'm I, after they're sent back from neuro. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the uveitis and parotitis. I've not seen the nerve palsies with those. Okay. I don't know if you have, Mary Beth, but the classic syndrome, I think, is those with the, fever. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, uh, getting back to Miss Otis, you plan to see her again after some labs and a non contrasted CT of the chest. She leaves your clinic with an informational pamphlet on sarcoidosis that's probably about 95 pages long. A few months later, you get a call from Miss Otis regarding her shortness of breath with exertion and a dry cough that she has noticed. She got busy at work and thus uh, has yet to get the labs and CT done. But now that she's feeling symptomatic, she wonders if this could be related to sarcoidosis. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and skip forward on the questions because we, we've kind of discussed the alternative diagnoses. Um, is there a clear, reliable association between the radiographic stage of sarcoidosis and how symptomatic a patient is when they present? So, no, there is not. <laughs> um, I think in all lung disease, I've been really impressed with uh, the degree of impairment that you see in imaging or in pulmonary function tests and the patient's symptoms. So, uh, you'll see a patient with sarcoid who has pretty extensive parenchymal invo involvement, and they're really not symptomatic. 
and they can have preserved PFTs as well. Uh, and then you see folks who don't have that much parenchymal involvement, but they're quite symptomatic and they may have impairment on their PFTs. And I think this is really complicated by other things. It's complicated by obesity. It's complicated by heart disease, uh, you know, diastolic dysfunction, particularly uh, pulmonary hypertension and things that just don't show up on imaging. So I don't think, I think the imaging is really informative. I think the imaging is really important, but I think the correlation between what a patient is experiencing and what you're seeing on the imaging is not very good. Mary Beth, are you are you starting with a high res CT in these folks? Like, what what sort of imaging? Beyond, after the first chest X ray, once they're symptomatic, uh, what? Let's say they're not going to be able to see you for six weeks, and we're the primary. We want to get some imaging cooking. What what might we order? Yeah, I I appreciate that question, and I do think the high resolution CT scan is that workhorse of any interstitial lung disease and sarcoidosis included. You know, and what you'll what you'll be picking up there is whether there's parenchymal disease in addition to the lymphadenopathy that we saw on Ms. Otis on her chest x-ray, but oftentimes the, the, um, the parenchymal disease or the, the, the nodules that you might see that are classic for sarcoid may only show up on a high-resolution CT scan. And the pattern on that high-resolution CT scan is super helpful. So what you typically would see in sarcoid is these nodules, these tiny little nodules will be in this what's so-called peribronchovascular distribution. So they'll be kind of lumping up on the on the uh, on the pleural spaces on the on the um, bronchovascular bundles, et cetera. And that pattern can be very typical of sarcoid and reassure you that that the diagnosis that you've made um, is sarcoid and that the the findings on the lung CT scan are sarcoid. and then, then the manifestations that she's developing now with shortness of breath are also classic for sarcoid and help you rule out those other differential reasons for her shortness of breath. What if she had on her, um, I know PET scanning is something that sometimes people get. So if she had heart block, is she buying herself a PET scan or, or what sort of things make you think this person needs a PET scan or I know cardiac MRI is another consideration? Fantastic question. So yeah, the PET scan can be helpful for a variety of reasons. A, a full body PET scan um, in this diagnosis of sarcoid helps us understand potentially where the where the sarcoid is. So where we see inflammatory changes, either in lymph nodes, you know, outside of the chest, so in the abdomen, pelvic area, et cetera, that can be helpful. Um, and then PET scans, you're asking questions more specific to a cardiac manifestation. And so when a patient has, and, and as John has said, and I completely agree that we have to have a very high index of suspicion for cardiac involvement. And some of those manifestations may be, as you mentioned, an abnormal EKG, um, or the patient may be symptomatic with palpitations, syncope, presyncope, or we may see actual, the shortness of breath could be the result of heart failure. So if an echo is abnormal or, set, or the, you know, suspicion of heart failure, these are all reasons to suspect cardiac sarcoid. And then our diagnostic tools can include, as you mentioned, a cardiac MRI or a cardiac PET scan, which is actually different than a, than a full body PET scan. The cardiac PET scan is really gated to look at the cardiac, um, the heart tissue. So that's a, that's a test that you can order as well. And yes, if she, if she did have heart block, if she did have palpitation, she did buy herself a cardiac specific evaluation. Mm-hmm. So John, we, it's a, while we're, oh yeah, go, go for it, Paul. Sorry, John, I'll, I'll ask you, while we're in the world of imaging, I feel like there's much ado made about the actual staging of, of sarcoidosis. Could you just talk us through that and what, what am I to do with that information? Sure. 
Um, so the the staging of the of pulmonary sarcoid is called the yeah. scatting radiographic stages, and you know we have stage zero disease, which really there's no pulmonary involvement. Uh, stage one disease, where you have just lymph node involvement, so uh, mediastinal and hilar adenopathy that is that is bilaterally bilateral. Uh, so if you had unilateral hilar and unilateral paratracheal involvement, that would not be consistent with sarcoid. Stage two is when you get into uh, parenchymal involvement and mediastinal and hilar adenopathy. And the majority of cases present really in stage one or stage two disease. Stage three disease is where you just have parenchymal involvement and no adenopathy. And stage four, when you just have fibrotic changes. So that's, that staging is important because it informs decisions. You don't have to memorize this, the staging, but it's important to say, hey, if someone has stage one disease, you know, I'm not putting them on methotrexate or steroids unless I have a good other reason to. If someone has stage two disease, well, then I'm really thinking about starting them on systemic therapy, but I want to assess how much involvement they have. So, Which be- kind of begs the question, uh, what determines when you would start therapy for these patients? Is it the the staging on imaging or is it symptoms or what, what's kind of the, the trigger point? So I think the trigger point, we think of uh, damage to organs that is progressive and um, irreversible that may be occurring or dangerous involvement. So people who are getting heart block, people who have neurologic involvement. So damage or danger being the paradigm that makes you want to treat somebody. If I have a patient, for instance, who is a young guy, very active, and he's losing some lung function and he has quite a bit of parenchymal involvement, uh, I'm going to treat that person. I don't want them to be debilitated by progressive sarcoid. So, you know, you have danger of losing more organ function in someone, uh, which can be, you know, quite a bit of morbidity that they incur. If someone has involvement, that's dangerous. They have neurologic involvement, they have cardiac involvement, then I'm really going to move forward with aggressive therapy. And Mary Beth, as a primary care physician, is it something that we need to consider doing before we send them to you if we're pretty certain about the diagnosis? Is it time sensitive, for instance? Um, it can be. It's not typically, you typically have time to secure the diagnosis so that you know you're treating the right disease. Um, and so it's preferential to have that biopsy done so you know that you're treating uh, sarcoid and not uh, something else. And so I think it's it's preferred to secure your diagnosis before you treat. Having said that, of course, patients, you know, the other, John mentioned danger, but symptoms drive their, you know, the need to treat as well. Um, And so when you're concerned about symptoms, sometimes, um, you know, you want to move that diagnosis along so that you get treating more, more rapidly. I don't necessarily recommend empiric treatment uh, without a diagnosis. Sorry. I I was going to say, I agree with Mary Beth. Sometimes you have folks you might not actually treat, but they have so many symptoms and you're pretty sure they're related to their sarcoid diagnosis. And, uh, you know, you treat them and uh, try to limit the side effects of your treatments. I think we should talk, get back to Miss Otis's case here. It seems like she's now having symptoms. So Mary Beth, let's say uh, it doesn't seem like she has a pneumonia, obvious pneumonia. She's not having fevers. We get a high res CAT scan and let's say, let's call her, she's stage two. What, what might you do for her? Um, and what might that conversation sound like? 
So the conversation might sound something like, we're very comfortable with the diagnosis. This is your sarcoid that's treat that's acting. You're short of breath. I'm concerned about your symptoms. I think we should treat you. The medicines we have to use um, all suppress your immune system in one form or another. The first line of therapy is prednisone, um, and and we use that quite frequently. And patients are often very responsive to prednisone um, in for sarcoidosis. And so we may want to start with uh, prednisone to treat the patient. I tell them that typically we don't need large doses to be effective. Oftentimes we can start with something around 20 milligrams of prednisone and that can help a patient's uh, shortness of breath. So I like to start on a lower dose rather than giving them all the side effects of, you know, high dose prednisone. Um, And so that I often will start with that. And then if they have a nice response and we have difficulty weaning it, then we start moving into what we call the steroid sparing agents. Um, that maybe uh, Dr. Boltax can tell us more about if if you would like. Yeah. So just to, so the prednisone, you're starting at 20, uh, hoping that that'll get their symptoms under control. And then you mentioned if we can't get them, you're saying if we can't get them under control, so you would keep them at that dose. If they do well, then you would try to wean it down. But if they don't do well, you might start to add these second line medications. That's, that's a, that's a good strategy. Yes. So John, what, what other medications would be your adjuvants to steroids? Well, so what I would say is that if you start them on prednisone and they have a response, we want to taper that dose over six months. And if we can get that dose under 10 milligrams and they're stable, we may want to consider staying with prednisone as our medication choice. If you taper them down, you know, they have a nice response and then you try to taper them down. And then their disease flares, you know, they have a sarcoid flare, they start to feel worse, they get more, you follow up their CT scan, they have now again, more parenchyal involvement, then you want to move on to a second line drug. So I think, you know, understanding that prednisone may be the right drug if it's a really low dose. Um, if you can't control them with a low dose, then I think of methotrexate as the uh, first second line uh, cytotoxic drug for for. Uh, sarcoid based on the amount of evidence available. Mm. And then there are a lot of other options along that pathway, which include azathioprine, mycophenolate, leflunamide. There's a variety of drugs that you can use, but methotrexate is generally the one that you would start with as your second line drug. Mary Beth, do you tell patients, like for someone with a stage two disease that uh, like like Miss Otis, would you tell her there might be a chance she could come off all meds altogether. I mean, let's say that that's what she's worried about. In particular, she's just having a hard time. She's blaming herself that she didn't follow up. Like, could this have been prevented? Is there anything that could have prevented the progression from, I guess she was stage one initially, and now she's stage two? Yeah, I tell her that, um, as we talked about earlier, that it's really hard to predict the course of this disease and that, um, you know, some patients never need to be treated some patients, you know, it's about a third, 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 depending on the series you read, about a third or more don't never need therapy. About a third will need therapy um, or maybe even 50% and do very well and be able to come off of that at some point. The disease will either, um, you know, stabilize or actually fully remit. And a lot of the patients, you know, in two years from now will have no further sign of their disease. Uh, and then some people need chronic therapy uh, that that it can, we can control their disease with chronic therapy. And then a few people will sneak through the, all the therapies we try to use and progress despite our therapies. But I would tell her 
with her sort of active looking inflammatory, you know, parabronchovascular nodules um, that is clearly, um, you know, active and changing that we have a very good chance of controlling her disease, either with the low dose prednisone that uh, we talked about or with a second agent. So I would be, I would be encouraging and reassuring, I think, and I think that would be uh, appropriate. Can I ask you both, and one of my typical vague questions will be impossible to answer, (laughs) the answer will be, it depends, but I guess what I'm wondering is what what does the treatment team for sarcoidosis typically look like? Like, for instance, at Cashlack Northeast, I feel like it's sort of shared between rheumatology and pulmonology and sometimes nephrology, depending on involvement, kind of gets as part of it. Are, is this typically treated by a team with primary care as coordinator, or is it usually run by pulmonology unless things get way far away from the lungs? What does the typical sarcoid team look like, if you don't mind me asking? It's a great question. You teed us up for that very last question where you say, what's our advice? And <laughs> You know, Dr. Boltax has done a very good job actually developing a multidisciplinary team. Um, and so the, it does typically look like a large team of providers. Um, often the quarterback is the pulmonologist because, as we mentioned, 90% of, you know, sarcoid has some lung involvement or a rheumatologist because of the multi-organ systemic nature of the disease. Um, but then we bring in experts oftentimes, um, depending on your center, depending on who's available to you that uh, will help with the different organs that are involved. So if they have ophthalmologic evaluations, do you want me to pause? Can you hear that dog? I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. No, we no. like And we oh. like pets on the show anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Okay, okay. So if they have ophthalmologic involvement, we'll have an ophthalmologist who specializes in this, cardiac, cardiologist, et cetera. Dr. Boltax has set up a multidisciplinary clinic at the University of Utah where um, Several providers are in, in clinic together, so a patient can be seen serially by the value organ systems. And I think it's really important to remember that it's a high burden of disease for patients, right? I mean, they, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the disease and the prognosis. And if they have multiple organ involvement, they may end up running around to multiple specialists. So the more we can help coordinate their care so they're not having multiple visits and coordinate their care so the providers all agree on the treatment plan, the better it is for the patient. So I think we really um, try to encourage that sort of multidisciplinary uh, approach to patients with a team uh, that that is all familiar with sarcoid and that, that talks together. And if I could just add, you also sort of develop your, your contacts within Durham, your contacts within room, your contacts within. So even if you can't be in the same room, you know, you know who you want them to be referred to, you know who's in tune with what's going on with sarcoid and uh, is going to understand what the needs are around a given patient. Because it's hard to get, especially now with COVID, it's really hard to get everybody in the same room. And we have a great group of cardiologists, you know, a neurosarcoid team, and we can all just bounce ideas off each other and have discussions, maybe not in the same room, not seeing the patient at the same time, because that's just been so challenging. Uh, The other thing is your friendly neighborhood pharmacist is really your friend. Uh, because these drugs, you know, you have to monitor drug toxicities, you know, dosing has to be adjusted. They're invaluable. So having a pharmacist on your team is just so important. And that's where I think it gets really hard for a primary to manage this just from a resource standpoint. You know, imagine all the other things you have to do. And then you're like, okay, do I need to adjust their methotrexate because their creatinine has changed a little bit? It's just really, did I get their labs and my monitoring lab? So um, that team, it would be impossible without, without a pharmacist on that team. 
Before we make Miss Otis a little bit sick here, I wanted to ask, Mary Beth, I have a fair amount of patients that I'll just be seeing them and I'll and I'll be looking in their history and I'm seeing them for just the normal stuff, high blood pressure, obesity, whatever. And then I'm like, oh, they have sarcoid and they're not on <laughs> any medications for that. And usually I think about like, do they need a DEXA? Have they been, you know, do they have uh, hyperglycemia related to having been on steroids or if they're still on steroids? But what... Things in primary care, other than like getting them vaccinated, maybe getting them DEXAs if they're on chronic steroids, anything else that we can do to help you all out, like in between visits, because sometimes patients selectively follow up with certain people and they'll just let other other doctors not see them for big chunks of time. I, you know, it's a great question. And I think what you do is you be that very good internist that you are. You're compulsive at, you know, doing a full review of systems and anything that doesn't quite ring true. You think, oh, this could this be sarcoid related? I think that's one important thing. I think you also bring up a very good point is that to understand what medications they are on currently and what they've been on long term to understand medication side effects. And prednisone is that number one, uh, you know, drug that we oftentimes will um, neglect to take care of the potential side effects related to that, such as, um, as you said, high sugars, um, you know, DEXAs, bone density, um, cataracts, uh, you know, things of that nature. So I think that being aware that it's a multi-system disease, doing a full comprehensive, you know, review of systems and being aware of their medications are the two uh, really important, um, valuable tools that can help us um, with these patients. The third thing I would say is uh, being aware of, you know, steroid withdrawal. So patients that, um, have been on prednisone for a long period of time and we take it away for various reasons. Say the pulmonologist weans it, says you don't need this anymore. And then we leave them with adrenal insufficiency. Internists oftentimes will pick that up and help take care of that patient. We should be doing a good job as uh, sarcoid uh, experts taking care of the PJP prophylaxis of patients on a, on a dose of prednisone 20 milligrams or higher should be on uh, protection for that. Uh, but if if your friendly uh, neighborhood pulmonologist missed that, that's something to pay attention to as well. And I agree with everything. I just want to add one thing. I don't know. Sarcoid just appears on people's past medical history, whether they've had it or not. I literally tried to pull like who in the university system had sarcoid. And I reviewed 50 charts. And I when I looked through those charts, I couldn't really find any evidence that they ever had yeah. active sarcoid. <laughs> Or that they were treated for sarcoid. I think it just appears on people. I thought it was just me. <laughs> no, no. And I'm like, okay, that patient never had sarcoid. So the the number one thing I would do is like actually ask myself, well, is there really, did this patient ever have sarcoid? <laughs> and it is the blood stain on Lady Macbeth's hands too. Like you cannot get that damn thing off the chart. Like you'll remove it and then it shows back up. Like I have sent emails begging people like, please, I beg of you stop writing this down. But, it just it ends up that it just it turns back up like a bad penny. It's amazing. Yep. Sorry. And, and you, I just I reviewed all their past medical history, and I've reviewed every medication they're on. Uh, Paul, why don't you take us? To, uh, we're we're barreling towards the end of the show here, but I think Miss Otis needs to get a little bit sick before uh, we gotta we gotta put her through it a little bit. No, I mean that's just good storytelling. We'll, we'll take her to the precipice and then kind of bring the audience back. So. Ms. Otis has started on prednisone. We started on 40 milligrams daily, and over the next few months, she has tapered down to 10 milligrams daily, and she's doing okay on this dose. A few years now after your initial encounter, so she likes this well enough to have stayed with us, 
you get a courtesy call from the hospitalist to Cashlack about Ms. Otis. Um, apparently, she's been admitted with respiratory symptoms. Upon further questioning, you find out that she's having shortness of breath. She has a new oxygen requirement, and she's having night sweats along with myalgias and arthralgias. And so I, I, I guess our initial question, and why don't we start with Mary Beth, could this be uh, a sarcoid flare? And could you um, also tell me what that is and what that means? <laughs> sure. It can absolutely be a sarcoid flare, but the differential is very broad. So you want, you want to make sure you walk your uh, your doctor at Cashlack General through the, um, you know, the differential. Hey, did you roll out the pee? Did you roll out the pneumonia, et cetera, et cetera. Again, the high-resolution CT scan or the, the CT angiogram, you know, that has a pretty good resolution of the lung parenchyma is your friend. And so you look to make sure there wasn't a pulmonary embolism and he's not in heart failure, et cetera. Uh, and then if you see, you know, ground glass or more bronchovascular bundles or something of that nature, um, then you say, I think, yeah, this could be a sarcoid flare. Um, and, um, and then you would treat accordingly. Now, you ask what a sarcoid exacerbation is. It's essentially any sort of um, increased activity of the underlying sarcoidosis that, you know, that's been in balance, right? You've had this imbalance with either she's been in remission or she's... Um, been on a nice stable dose of medications. I'm not sure in this case which where where we've left her, but um, and then the disease for whatever a reason has increased activity. So at that point, uh, once you've ruled out uh, the, in your differential other causes and you decide this is sarcoid flare, then the, the the therapy really is that again starting the prednisone at a higher dose uh, and then weaning that back down again once she's in control. Yeah, John, I think we had her on 10 milligrams or less a day at at the start of this this flare. So what what might that look like in the near term? Just like a little bit more granular. Is it is it five days of higher dose and then back taper back down? How would you do that typically? Sure. That that's that's a good question. And and the thing about this is you never do it exactly the same. Like it, this is probably some of the frustration. There's just not a cookbook, you know. You'd want to know, well, how bad is her flare? What has her disease done over time? I mean, were her PFTs up until then, like, you know, normal and stable? And was her imaging normal or stable? Or was, as you look back, you know, there was actually subtly increasing disease as this was going on. So I think what I would do is I would probably put her back up to a level of 20 or more for, you know, not five days, but because this is a chronic disease for her, but longer course than that, you know, maybe a couple of months. And if I really thought, well, hey, this is, as I look back and I take a really close look, you know, her disease has actually been a little bit active over this time. Then I'd put on methotrexate as my second line drug. And methotrexate takes a while to get up to steady state on the order of months, you know, four months or so. And so I would then slowly taper down her steroids as her methotrexate dose builds up. If she was truly controlled, you know, I might say, let's get you up on a higher dose for a month or two. Let's see you back in a month and see what things look like. You know, is everything back to your baseline now that I got a month? And then I'd kind of maybe more quickly taper her back down to 10. But it would never be the same every time. I mean, I just, they're so different and the disease is so different in every patient that uh, you just have to adjust a little bit every time. And that's the advantage of knowing that patient well. And you hinted there that you would be following PFTs and imaging. So is that just like a high-res CT and PFTs? Is that once a year, every couple years? Well, certainly some, as I first make a diagnosis on somebody, I'll follow them up in three months with repeat PFTs. And, and maybe I can get away with a chest X-ray 
you know, if I have a high res CT and then I have a chest x-ray, I kind of know what those two look like, but you know, then a CT scan at six months. And when someone's first diagnosed, I'm following them up every three months for at least the first six months, generally, uh, especially if I'm putting them on systemic therapy and then backing off and, you know, really adjusting as the disease, um, as the disease behaves. Okay. So Mary Beth, this, uh, while Miss Otis is in the hospital, so we're admitting her, we're going to step up her prednisone dose. Any other things in the hospital that you need to do for her, whether it's in cardiac investigations or just, just keeping her on telemetry, getting a, ba- a baseline EKG, any other things that we should think about? I mean, we should, I think if she's presenting with increased shortness of breath, um, we should think about um, cardiac in addition to pulmonary as well as, you know, potentially hematologic. So you get a CBC, make sure her bone marrow is fine. She's not anemic, things of that nature. Um, And then you um, would check a cardiac evaluation. At the very least, I'd have her on telemetry, like you mentioned, and if there's anything and get an EKG and if there's changes in her rhythm patterns, I think that would be an important reason to trigger a cardiac evaluation. I'd also probably get an echocardiogram. Uh, One thing that we haven't spoken much about is the component of pulmonary hypertension that occurs in sarcoid. Um, And this can be um, a secondary to the parenchymal lung disease. So if they have severe enough parenchymal lung disease, this can be secondary. But also um, there is really uh, pulmonary hypertension specific to sarcoidosis, so-called group five pulmonary hypertension. And there's some literature uh, supporting treating the pulmonary hypertension we see in uh, sarcoid. So for that reason, I would get a, a, an echocardiogram. I would assess her pulmonary pressures. I would assess her cardiac function. And if either of those are off, consider uh, cardiac involvement of sarcoid. So it's, uh, this has been fantastic. Definitely, we're leaving some stuff on the table. But we'll, I'll ask each of you for uh, one favorite take-home point. John, we'll start with you and then, and then back to Mary Beth. Um, I think the take-home point really is about the amount of involvement that uh, sarcoid can have the variety of organ systems and just being thorough and looking for that sarcoid uh, that spurs the necessity of treatment. Uh, you don't want to miss neurosarcoid. You don't want to miss cardiac sarcoid. You don't want to miss pulmonary sarcoid that's causing significant lung injury to a patient. So uh, making sure that you're assessing your patient thoroughly. That's my my number one thing because it's so challenging to make sure that you're that you've covered your bases. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I would add to that just just because of exactly what we said, that that constant surveillance, that concern that it can involve any organ that you have to remember that the patient burden is very high in this disease. It's high because um there's we as physicians are uncertain. We can't give them excellent prognostic information. It's high because they can have multiple organs involved and be running around doing a lot of tests. And it's high because they suffer from impairment from the disease. So just being aware that our patients are suffering from this, being alert to, you know, and being there for them, I think is a very valuable um, take home point. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. 
A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Deb Gorth, Cyrus Askin, and the abominable robot who made several appearances on this episode. <laughs> and to our social media team, Beth Garb Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, and Chris the Chumanchu on Facebook. Until next time, I think I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And uh, before I sign off, I'd like to remind the audience that this and most of our other recent episodes are available for free for all healthcare professionals to claim CME credit at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Thanks to VCU Health Continuing Education for that. And with that, I have been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that you are doubtless hearing behind us, as well as thanking Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>